Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode six in the book of John titled Light and Darkness, Heavenly and Earthly, where we discuss John chapter three, verses 17 through 36. If you'd like to donate to keep the Two Journeys podcast going, please visit twojourneys.org and hit the donate button. I'm your host, Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are continuing this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, and we come to just an incredible portion of Scripture where Jesus is educating this Pharisee about the kingdom of God. Can you give us an overview of the rest of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and then the dialogue with John and his disciples in the rest of the chapter? Yeah, fundamentally, we're going to see in this section that apart from the sovereign grace of God in Christ, people are in darkness, spiritual darkness. And we get a clear statement uh, from the same writer, the Apostle John, uh, speaking of God in 1 John that uh, chapter 1, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so we naturally were in darkness and under, we're going to find in this text, under the wrath of God. It's taught twice in this text that, that people who are not in Christ are condemned already. And God's wrath remains on them. They, they're already in, in, under the wrath of God. And so to be in darkness, to walk in darkness, to bring forth fruit, the fruit of darkness, all of those things are going to be in the themes today. And the absolute essential uh, requirement that we must be born again, that we must cross over from death to life, from darkness to light, or we will be destroyed by the wrath of God. That comes out very clearly in the second half of John 3. Hmm. I'm going to read the text for our listeners, and we're discussing 17 through 36, but I'm going to start with verse 16, which again is the most famous John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anan near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. 
Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So Andy, going back to verse 17, when John says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What does he mean by condemn in this verse? Yeah, I think ultimately condemn means to to be sent to hell, to be destroyed under the wrath of God and all that. And I think the idea here is is the world was already under God's wrath and under condemnation. It's going to come across very plainly uh, at the very end. Uh, God's wrath remains on him. The, the world was already under the wrath of God. And again, we can see very plainly, you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone fell from heaven to earth. God didn't need to come into the world to destroy the, uh, the world. You're going to see the same thing very plainly in the book of Revelation. As judgment after judgment pours down from heaven to earth, I mean, literally, you know, in a, in a spiritual, metaphorical sense, you got the 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 uh, the bowls that are poured out by angels from heaven to earth. They they descend down. So Jesus didn't come into the world born of a virgin to destroy the world. It was because God wanted to save the world, and that's why He sent His only begotten Son, John three sixteen, so that the world would not perish. So to be destroyed means to perish under the wrath of God, and God did not send His Son into the world to destroy it. That's not why He came. Now, what does verse 18 say about the present state of the world? Because it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Yeah, I I think the idea here is obviously that the condemnation that Jesus refers to here has not been consummated. Uh, There are people under the wrath of God. God's wrath remains on them, it says in John 3.36, and yet they're living their daily lives. Uh, They're enjoying common grace blessings. They're enjoying, as Jesus said about, about God's enemies, they're enjoying um, sunshine and rain and, and all kinds of beautiful things, but they're under the wrath of God. They've been, uh, judgment's been passed over them, it's just the, the sentence hasn't been executed yet. When Jesus in the sheep and the goats passage says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, at the end of that, then these will go away into eternal punishment or wrath, but the righteous to eternal life. That's the final consummation of condemnation. That's not happened yet. But sinners outside of God's grace in Satan's kingdom are under the wrath of God. They stand condemned already. We get scary language in these in these verses about condemnation and wrath, but verse 18 also presents this incredible remedy for anyone. What does he what does he tell us? Yeah, all we need to do, verse 18 says plain, plainly, is to believe in the name of God's only begotten Son, to believe in his name. So everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's the remedy. Light has come into the world, as he's about to say, all you have to do to cross over from darkness to life, light is to believe in Jesus. It's that simple. There are no works that could ever do it. We can't earn our way across. But if we simply believe in God's only begotten Son, uh, we will not be condemned. So that's the, the plain teaching of the gospel. Yeah, as we're discussing this, Andy, I'm, I think of um, people who decry, you know, the the hell, fire, and brimstone preachers. Mm-hmm. And, and as we go through the scriptures, so often God is pairing salvation and judgment together, the offer of salvation and the warning of judgment. And we have that so many times in, in even these few verses. Just over and over he says, whoever believes will be saved. 
Yeah, it's so plainly here that, that Jesus, I guess, would be the ultimate hellfire and brimstone preacher. No one sp spoke more in greater detail or with more authority, clearly, on the issue of eternal conscious torment, which is hell. So there should be a terror of hell that is, I think, essential to our salvation, that we believe that we will perish in hell eternally if we do not, if we do not believe in Jesus. Uh, there is no need for a savior apart from that. People could generally say, you know, I'm prosperous, I'm healthy, things are going well in my life. What do I need to be saved from? It's like, well, what you need to be saved from is eternal conscious torment in hell. And so Jesus would clearly make that plain. That's what perish means, that God sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish. That's what this language of condemnation is all, is, is all about as well. And yet here's a simple remedy. All you have to do is to believe in the name of God's only begotten son. Let's talk about that, the name, believe in the name, because that's what he says here in verse 18. Also, you know, Paul says that the name of Jesus, everyone will bow, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why is the name significant? Well, the, the word name really represents or sums up all of what a person is, both their, their, their personhood, perhaps also their position, and also their achievements. Like you make a name for yourself, you, you make a reputation. Like God said through the prophet Nathan, said to David, now I'll give you a name like the greatest men of the earth. So you talk about Alexander the Great or, or Julius Caesar or, or some of these other great men. And they're great because of their position of power and their incredible achievements, like maybe on the battlefield. So that's making a name for yourself, etc. Well, Jesus has made the ultimate name for himself, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth. Jesus is exalted to the highest place. He is the greatest person that's ever lived. His achievements are greater than anyone else's. And so that's the name. It's the summing up of who he is as a person, namely God, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, who he is and what he has achieved, namely sinless life, miracles, death on the cross, resurrection, ascension, sitting at God's right hand. That's the name of Jesus. So the thing is, in evangelism, we have to communicate all that to build up the name of Jesus in the heart or mind of someone who's never heard of him. They don't have any knowledge of the name, so they can't call in the name of the Lord if they have no biography, they have no story. So in evangelism, we have to tell them about Jesus. There was a holy man sent from God who was born of a virgin. He had no human father, but he had a human mother. He lived a normal, ordinary, physical human life, but he never sinned. You had to tell all that story. Without that story, nobody can genuinely believe in him because they don't know who he is. And so that's what I think of when I think of the word name. What does Jesus say in verse 19 about this judgment that is coming to the world? Yeah, there is this verdict, he said, or judgment. Light has come into the world, uh, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so this just you know, ties into what we've been saying. People stand condemned already because of who they are. They're in Satan's kingdom. They're corrupted. They're wicked. And so uh, the verdict is this. The judgment is this. Jesus is the perfect man. He is the Son of God. He is light. And he came into the world, but they rejected him. They hated him. And in so doing, they proved their own hateful, corrupt nature. So that's what I get out of this verse 19. You know, light has come into the world. That's Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. But people loved darkness instead of that light. They would rather do wicked things than, than believe in Jesus. Yeah, this is an interesting concept here that this is judgment that they reject the light. I think a lot of times people think of judgment as future, mm. but it's, it's also current, sure. that, that part of their judgment is their rejection of the light. Yeah, just rejecting Jesus. And the fact that you would rather have 
darkness rather than light. You'd rather have, and he says the reason is because their deeds are evil. And so we get addicted to sin. We get addicted. We don't just do wickedness. We love wickedness. We approve, Romans 1, we approve of other people who practice these things. Um, we have no fear of God concerning these things. We cannot have them stripped from us. We're addicted to them and love them. And as a result, then, we'll hate anyone who tries to separate us from the things we love. And Jesus said, the reason the world hates me is I testify to it that what it does is evil. And they don't want to hear that, and so that's why they killed him. Uh, if Jesus had just kept quiet and lived off in a desert and been a holy and pure individual, isolated man, he never would have been assassinated or killed, ever. It's because he went out publicly and openly. He cleansed the temple with a whip. He told them that what they were doing was evil. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And people hated that because he was saying, what you love is evil. Hmm. And by the way, that also also shows the absolute need for sovereign grace. You cannot, as an act of your will, change what you love into something you now hate and change something you hate into what you now love. Naturally, people love sin and hate Jesus when, if they know anything about him. And keep in mind, we're in the same context of Jesus telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. Yeah. So this goes back to being born again, is you cannot see the kingdom and you cannot be delivered from your wickedness unless God has caused you to be born again. Yeah, and now we can see also just people is like, how do I know if I'm born again? How do I know if I'm alive? Well, go to what you love. Do you see a principle inside you by which you love righteousness now? You may not do it the way you want to, but do you love Jesus? Do you love righteousness? Do you yearn? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you love what God says is pure and holy? And if so, you can thank God. Thank God that he transformed you because he changed your nature so that you would love righteousness and hate wickedness. Amen. You've already alluded to verse 20 where it says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So, the, so you talked about Jesus coming in and, you know, uh, cleansing things. He he shined light on their wickedness. Yeah, it's it's just an amazing thing, isn't it? We we're so different as Christians now. We we actually come close. We are we we're told in the book of Hebrews to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So however ashamed we are of our wicked deeds, and we still do wicked deeds, we bring them to Jesus. But wicked people who are not regenerate, they don't love Jesus, they run from that. They don't want anything to do with it. They do not want their deeds exposed. There's a shame factor here. That's really what's that going on in verse 20. The, their, the fear is that they'll be exposed, that, that light will shine on their lives and reveal just how wicked they are. Uh, people do things in secret. They hide. The, they do things at night. And they don't want those things exposed and revealed. Yeah. You just mentioned that even Christians who do evil things, we actually bring them to Jesus for cleansing. That's what verse 21 says. Yeah. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Yeah. So how does a Christian come and present their works? I know none of our works are ever truly good. Mm -hmm. They're all laced with sin, but how does yeah. a Christian present their works to Jesus, and what does he do with them? Honestly, I have the hardest time seeing verse 21 except from a heavenly perspective at this point. I'm writing a book on heavenly memories, and this is a key verse for me in this whole concept. It's really in heaven that, that verse 21 gets consummated. We come to Jesus so that in heaven, freed at last, delivered from self, all we care about is the glory of God. 
That's what will be in heaven. And one of the questions about heavenly memories has been, will we remember our, our sins? And the answer is we will. And we'll have no shame. We'll have, have no mourning over it, just knowledge of it. So that God will get the glory for having covered those sins, forgiven them, and also used sinners like you and me that will realize who we really were and God still used us for his glory. So verse 21 gets consummated in heaven where we come absolutely into perfect light with our full record of everything we were. And the only thing in our mind at that point is a desire to show the greatness of God's work in our lives, both you know, in terms of empowering us to do good things which we would never have done. If he hadn't worked it in, in us, all of the crowns that we'll wear in heaven of our own glory, we will cast before him because we're going to say everything that we did that was of any good at all, you did it in us. You'll give you, we'll give you the full glory. Secondly, even our sins, we bring it into the light to show how great was his grace to cover sins like that. How magnificent that he would use a sinner like me. And we will have no fear of that, no, no sense of shame, no hiding. First of all, it cannot be. You can't tell half the story because the story is actually unintelligible apart from the fullness of everything that happened. Saul of Tarsus' story is unintelligible apart from his full life A to Z. And we know that in his case. We just don't want it happening to us. But the fact is, John 3.21 is, for me, ultimately, I'm not saying there's not some of this now in, on earth, but I think ultimately in heaven, Beyond Judgment Day, we come into the light of the throne with our full history and say, to God be the glory. Yeah, it's incredible, astonishing. Yeah. Well, this concludes the record of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Do you think the fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and then Jesus uses all this light and darkness language, do you think this would have hit him uh, you know, with a particularly piercing needle? Absolutely. I mean, I, I guess I hadn't thought of it like I, I, I should have until just a moment ago. Here Nicodemus comes at night and Jesus is the light and they're coming at night for fear. He's coming at night for fear that it'll be exposed that he's asking Jesus these questions like, no, 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 come openly. Come during the daytime. And when does he come? He's going to come after the crucifixion. He's going to come after the crucifixion. It's incredible. Yeah, broad daylight, you know, I guess the, the, the day is ending. But, but uh, it, it, they talk about the spotlight on him. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body and then wraps it up. You know, he and Joseph wrap it up and all that. It's just incredible. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to see Nicodemus in heaven. Praise God. Yeah. So the text turns and then talks about John the Baptist conversation. It appears that some of his followers are developing a little bit of a rivalry and a concern that maybe Jesus is accumulating disciples. What can we learn from John's attitude toward Jesus in this section? Yeah, they're concerned about market share. You know, you're losing, you're losing market share. Your numbers are down. And, you're, you know, you're losing over to that guy, you know, that, that we talked about earlier. And, and so here's John carrying on his ministry until the time comes. And, uh, you know, he's going to get arrested by Herod and he's going to be put in prison and eventually be decapitated. So this is a very brief moment of overlap between John the Baptist and Jesus. And they're both doing what they do, but Jesus is doing it better. And it's, it's really quite remarkable here. And so what ends up happening here in this conversation is you see just how heavenly-minded and God-centered John the Baptist was. It's really quite staggering. And you see the mind of, of a holy man here, which elicited such incredible praise from Jesus, saying, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. We must imagine that the God-centeredness and the humility that he displays here is a big part of what made Jesus praise him so highly. 
So what he's going to say is he's going to say, look, my ministry comes from God. He gets to do whatever he wants with my ministry. And so a man can't receive anything except what God gave him. God has given me a role, but it's not that role. The role you're thinking about right now, we're going to find out just how great this one is whose sandals I do not deserve to carry. We're going to find out the magnitude of his role and the smallness of my role. So that's about what he's going to end up talking about. Yeah, let's talk about that first thing that you mentioned. It's in the context of they they come to him and they say, Rabbi, he who's with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. That's You were talking about the concern of the market share. And then John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Talk about why that perspective is just so healthy for every believer to see. Joel, it's overwhelming. I mean, actually, it's hitting me powerfully right now through the Spirit. If we really believe that, then it would be tremendous ground for contentment every moment of our lives. What we have, and even more specifically, what we do not have. And frankly, that's what John's talking about here, is what he does not have. He does not get the bride. It's not given to him to have the bride. He's the friend of the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. And so I can't receive anything except what God has chosen to give me. And you get the sense from John, he's absolutely content in that. Whatever God gave me, I'm happy for it. So as we decide, you know, moment by moment, we, uh, we live and, and there's, there's things that happen, we, we have a basic decision to make in terms of our, our reaction. And we can't control our circumstances. This is a powerful verse, John 3.27, a powerful verse on how we should think about everything in our lives and what isn't in our lives. So take an example. Um, we, we have a significant medical issue, all right? Maybe not life-threatening, but a significant medical issue. And we're crying out to God for healing or for a loved one, same thing. And uh, it doesn't come. But all the other bodily systems are working fine. Maybe it's significant back pain. Think about that that way, right? I mean, you can live with it. It's not going to kill you. But it, boy, and it's like, oh, my life would be so much better if God would take this back pain away. But your feet are fine. Your intestines are fine. Your brain is fine. Your eyesight's great. Your hearing's fine. I have received all of those things as a gift from God, every one of them. And so it's just a perspective that you have. And then, you know, you, you, uh, uh, you get a promotion, let's say at work, with a significant raise. Um, immediately, arrogance, pride, and all that, cut off at the knees by this verse. God gave this to me. God gave it to me. What should I do with it? How, could I, how should we use the extra money? How could I use the extra influence for the kingdom of God? It's just a, a very heavenly, God-centered way to think. Or you don't get the promotion, and you realize God's behind it. Yeah, God's behind all of it. So it's just a powerful verse. I love it. Yeah. The Pauline equivalent to this would be in Philippians, where he says, you know, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things to him who gives me strength. You know, like you say, when, when things are going great, understanding that, you know, I got it all from heaven. And then when God takes it away, frankly, usually you don't keep all your stuff. God often takes it away. And uh, he takes away loved ones. He takes away possessions. He takes away influence. Absolutely. Just having that perspective of John, if a man can receive nothing, and he gave it, he takes it away. Amen. How does this image of the bride and the, and the friend of the bridegroom, the, the bride, the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom, how does that help us understand Jesus and his work and then other people who assist in Jesus' work? It's just incredible. 
I mean, he's got this image of bride and bridegroom long before the Apostle Paul wrote that all, every marriage is a picture of Christ, you know, in, his, in the church, the bride and the bridegroom. So it's powerful that John even has this metaphor uploaded. But fundamentally what he's saying is the bride is, are the people of God, the, the, the multitude that's flocking to Jesus. The bride's coming to, to the bridegroom. John is given the role to stand alongside and help. And so ultimately, fundamentally, uh, you know, we are co-laborers with God. We are co-laborers with Christ. But every, all the glory, all of that goes to Christ. So we just have a limited, a limited role. And so we see just the humility of John here in a very powerful way. How can people who have fruitful ministries employ this phrase that John uses? He says, he must, he's speaking of Jesus, he must increase, mm. I must decrease. Well, if that's not a foundational verse for sanctification. You know, you think about I, the, the just overpowering fanatical commitment to self-interest we have from infancy. This is a great verse to kill that. It's like, I must become less and less. I must die. I must, you know, like Paul says in Philippians 3, becoming like him in his death. I want to learn how to die, to die to me, to deny myself. That's similar to deny myself, isn't it? He must increase, I must decrease. I, I need to learn how to say no to me and say yes to Jesus. Anything that I can do to maximize him and to minimize me. So this will be, the consummation of this is in heaven when we will be so about the glory of Christ and so little about our own glory. Mm. The Gospel of John often, this question is often asked of Jesus of where is he from? Mm. And, and John the Baptist, he gives us this information. What does he say about where Jesus is from? He comes from above. He comes from heaven. And so he has, he's very clear on this, and Jesus himself uses this language a lot in John's gospel. I am from above, you are from below, or I've come down from heaven. So John knows very clearly that Jesus came from heaven. Do you have any closing thoughts on this section or just Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus? Yeah, I think verse 36 is so overpowering, and I think it really should, should incentivize all of our efforts at evangelism. You know, it says very plainly, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That's a terrifying concept. We're surrounded by people who, Romans 2 tells us very plainly, all they're doing every day is storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath. That's terrifying. So they're under God's wrath already, and they're under more wrath. They will be under more wrath tomorrow than they are today. That's what they're doing with their days every day storing up wrath and that's terrifying and we as christians with the gospel we have the only possible answer and that is that they would come out from under that terrifying wrath and realize that all that wrath they've been accumulating jesus like a right lightning rod took that wrath in himself on the cross so to me it's a very powerful image here that that we need to keep in our minds amen well thank you for listening to the two journeys podcast i encourage you this week to Put these verses in application and share the gospel with somebody, understanding that unless they hear and believe, they are under the wrath of God. And so uh, do not hide your light, but let it shine before men. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.